0: Following audio is from Crossroads Church in West Ossipee, New Hampshire. For more information about Crossroads Church, you can go to www.crossroadsossipee.com. Hello. <clears throat> Great to see you all this m- morning. I'm happy to uh, be here with you in a nice dry place. <laughs> Well, oh, we're back in First Peter this morning, so you can turn to First Peter chapter 3, uh, verses 8 through 12, and that's page 1015 in the Pew Bibles. And it's a big day because next week we turn the page to 1016. Wow, very exciting. Uh, so as you're turning there, think about, uh, think with me about the Apostle Peter. What are some words that come to your mind when you think of the Apostle Peter? Pa- patient? Really? This is low. Idiot is closer to the top of the list. Yeah? What else? What? Stabber. Stubborn. Oh, stubborn. Like, well, there was that ear. Thing, but it was more of a, whatever, chop more than a stabbing. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, some of the things that, uh, like I said, on my list are, are things that pop to my mind when I think about the Apostle Peter is, yeah, loud mouth, dummy, um, or to be more polite, impetuous, um, impulsive maybe. Yeah, ear, ear lopping off. Um, how many of you like the first thing you think of when you think of the Apostle Peter is expositor, yeah, Bible, Bible teacher? Yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe not. Well, in our verses this morning that we're going to look at here in 1 Peter 3, that's exactly what Peter is doing. He is expositing a text, explaining the meaning, the original meaning of a biblical text. And his biblical text is, it, like, he's writing the Bible, so that's confusing. But he's expositing an Old Testament text, and that is Psalm 34, verses 12 through 16. Um, in, and in his exposition of the text, you're going to love this, he shows us five key words, right? Not three, but five. He's a good expositor. He knows three is just not enough. Yeah. They, they all start with the same letter. No, I do he, he does do that uh, in the Greek, but uh, not in this particular passage. Sorry. So in this exposition of the text, he shows us five key words that are to characterize the Lord's church family. There are five essentials for Christian living. Um, so let's look at that text. We'll pray and uh, we'll jump right in. So First Peter chapter 3 starting at verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's pray. Father, we are so blessed to come into your presence this morning. We are grateful that we are able to freely gather around your word as your people. Lord, we are here to hear from you, from your word. May your spirit speak. Father, we give you this time for your glory and our good. Use it, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 34 is what Peter quotes here. Psalm 34 is a psalm of David. It is a wonderful hymn that acted as a sort of discipleship manual um, for the early church. Um, And don't forget, psalms are songs. They were sung. They had tunes. Um, Unfortunately, we've lost the tunes, but there are plenty of people that make up tunes all the time. Um, I'm not going to suggest that we, we do that now. Um, but this psalm, those, the, the words and the tune would have been familiar to Peter's original audience. Remember, these are first century Jewish believers scattered throughout Asia Minor, which we would call Turkey today. And the words of the song: Whoever desires to love life and see good days, Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So here's Peter as an expositor. As a good Bible teacher, he avoids the trap of the three-point sermon, goes for five, <laughs> Whew, dodged a bullet there. So let's look at Peter's, Peter's five points. There are, there are five key words um, or phrases that he uses here. The first one is in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind. Now, if you've been here or listened or watched videos or whatever, where we have been over the last few weeks, you know that Peter has been speaking to specific groups, specific people, and specific roles. Uh, he's talked to uh, about submission, submission as spouses, submission as servants, submission as citizens, and really now it's a broader category of submission as saints. Um, so... There you go. He's dealing with this wide focus on the whole church and their responsibilities of submission to one another, our responsibilities of submission to one another. And he starts with unity of mind. A unity of mind is not possible without submission. It just isn't. If you're the one that's right and everybody has to agree with you that's not unity that's conformity that's not what what uh, the lord is after here unity of mind is not possible without submission to one another out of reverence for christ and the word unity of mind is also translated harmonious i like that word a lot better unity of mind is kind of an ethereal thing but harmonious i think we can we can grab um, harmonies in music are powerful and beautiful. And singing in unison can be wonderful as well, but there is nothing like good harmony. One of my favorite experiences as a student uh, traveling to the Holy Lands is we went to the city of Petra. Perhaps you've heard of it. Uh, Indiana Jones went there. Um, <laughs> They weren't calling it Petra, but that's really where that, that cool scene in, in uh, the third movie is. Well, in that city, around the corner from that big beautiful building that uh, they say the Holy Grail was kept in, uh, there's a city in behind that um, and in one of it's all like carved into the cliffs um, And there's one great big cave building uh, that our class went to and we sang, did you guys do this? We sang uh, a very old hymn, Of the Father's Love Begotten. Uh, it's almost like a Gregorian chant. And sang that in four-part harmony inside this huge cave. And it was, it was awesome, especially those singing bass. It was just beautiful. Um, there's nothing like a good harmony So if you translate that kind of thing to how we think, harmonious in mind, everybody has their part, but they're all working towards the same goal, right? This is everyone pursuing the same end, but not doing it exactly the same. That's unison, not unity. There's a big difference. Life in the church family is just like that. We may not all sing the same part. We may not all stay in the same key as we sing. Uh, We don't all play the same instruments or instruments at all, but we should all be playing the same song as the Holy Spirit, as the conductor, and with God's word as our sheet music. That's life in Christ, life in the church family. We sing the same song, just different parts. And there is no part that's better or worse, more important or less. We all sing together. And this is exactly what Jesus prayed for, for the church in John 17, verses 10 and 11. Jesus' high priestly prayer He prayed, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, as we are one. That's Jesus' prayer for the church. Do you know that? Like... not just a bunch of people that gather together and they, you know, they like the context of, you know, that our Jesus desire for us is to be one. Not just an incidental group of people who live in the same area, but that we would be one how one is that? Like one-ish? Like we all wear the same t-shirts? No. Jesus prayed, as you and I are one, as the Father and the Son are one, that's what he wants his church to be like. That's pretty unified. That's pretty harmonious. Now, we stay around here, making and maturing disciples of Jesus Christ together as a family, like that's our Battle cry. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Purpose statement. I don't like any of those words and labels. But that's our kind of unifying thought. Like that's that's how we measure. What what are we going to do? Are we going to um, do this or do that? Well, what does it have to do with making and maturing disciples together as a family? Well, I, that's the measuring stick. You know, whether it does or not. So that's our. There's our our tune that we sing together. So have unity of mind, be harmonious in mind. And the next word Peter uses is sympathy. This, again, I think that unity of mind is the key thought, and then all these other things are subordinate thoughts to that because they all support this idea of being harmonious. Again, not possible without submission to one another out of reverence for Christ. So the next word is sympathy. Now, as one body, as Paul put it, one body with many members, being united in mind, when one part suffer, we all suffer. When we stub, when when you stub your toe, your toe is not the only one that feels it, right? That goes straight to your brain, Right? Our eyes may tear up, our mouths may fire something off, right? That's how a body works. And that's, we laugh, but that's exactly how the church should be. When one of us suffers, we all suffer. When one of us is rejoicing, then we all rejoice. This is so not 21st century America. Certainly not in New England. It's like, you stay over there, and I'm over here. All right, just, well, shake hands, be nice, but just stay out of my stuff. Just, you know, we live up on a mountain for a reason, <laughs> right? <laughs> Romans 12, 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. This is part of the harmonious mind. This is not just simply feeling bad when someone else is struggling. But this is following Jesus' command to love your neighbor as yourself. In the church family, everyone cares or should care not only for themselves, but looks out for the benefit of the others. In the church family, we are to bear one another's burdens. You know, that's really hard to do if you don't know what the burdens of others are. Like what? If you shake hands out the door, I have no idea what's going on with your life. Now, I have I have said more than once this week, I'm not a chaser of persons. I don't chase after people. Uh, I'm like a llama. You You come near me and spit. No, you come near me and if I... No? reach out. Okay, now we can connect, right? But that's a dumb. Sorry, that's a dumb. <laughs> never mind. Sometimes it's hard to do that, to bear one another's burdens. And I've been I've been asked before. Someone is struggling, pastor. Go get them, right? Go tell them what for. And sometimes. Well, I don't like that, but sometimes the loudest sermons are just a hug. You know, whether it's for comfort or encouragement or celebration, sometimes that's all we have to do. It's not, I need to go help you rearrange your thinking, but just to be there and support and love and encouragement. Again, this idea of sympathy is a reminder that we are not in this alone. We're not designed to do life alone. We're designed to work together, to be together, to bear one another's burdens. And piggybacking on that is Peter's next word, brotherly love. We've talked about this before, siblingly love. I'm going to keep saying brotherly love because it's a lot easier for me to say. J.P. Lang wrote that brotherly love is a radical sweetness in the temper of the mind that spreads itself into a man's words and actions. And this is not merely natural, but spiritual. We can all get along with people. Most of you that have... Uh, have Jobs or have ever had a job before. No, you well, you got to get along to get along. But that's not what brotherly love is. That's just being polite. Brotherly love is more than that. It's more than natural. It's spiritual. If you consider Peter's source text from Psalm 34, it says, Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. This is brotherly love, do you know that? What does it have to do with brotherly love? Well, brotherly love does not use its tongue to harm or to deceive its brothers and sisters. It does not slander. And I say that again. It does not slander. It does not gossip. It does not insult. It does not curse or scold. It does not lie or swindle or gloss over the truth. That's brotherly love. Speaking the truth in love is so important. I don't know what's going on, but I'm busy right now. (laughs) Brotherly love turns away from evil and does good. It seeks peace, and pursues it. It chases after peace, when peace will not be granted to it. Peace is not an easy pursuit. It takes effort. It follows after peace, when peace seems to flee. It strives towards peace, with intense effort. That's what those words mean. Not like, I'll get along with everybody, as long as they're, you know do as i expect right i'll get along with my neighbors provided they do xyz keep their dog out of my yard i don't have to listen to them yelling you know then i'll get along with them they just meet my standards we're good that's not brotherly love that's certainly not what life within the harmonious united mind of the church family should be like we we are all different here we are all from different backgrounds and different experiences but that's a good thing that's a beautiful thing that should be celebrated brotherly love is not content with discord it doesn't it doesn't just say eh, well uh things aren't good right now but we soldier on no that's that's ignoring a problem in the name of brotherly love like i'm not going to confront anybody because well confrontation that's not peace right not, no no that's how you seek peace is resolving the conflict ignoring conflict is not resolution Matthew 18 gives us great instructions on conflict resolution and its necessity and how to pursue peace. These are the words of Jesus. They're in red. Pay attention. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and tell them their fault between you and them alone. If they listen to you, you have gained your brother or sister. But if they do not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. But if they refuse to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Did you know that there is a biblical formula for conflict resolution within the church? Because there it is. Right. What is step one? Tell everybody else about the problem. Right. Make sure you have enough ammunition when it's time to fight and not only ammunition, but get everybody else on your side. Right. Biblical conflict resolution 101. Not even close. Conflict resolution begins with you and the person that you have conflict with and you go to them and try to work it out. And if they don't listen, you take somebody else with you, right? Only after you've gone to them. And if two or three other people is not enough, then you take it to the church. Speak to the elders. Help me figure this out. What can we do, right? That doesn't mean stand up here in the pulpit and say, all right, everybody, here's what happened. Here's why they're wrong and I'm right. Join me and together we will rule the empire. You know, no, no, that's not love. Peter's next word is a tender heart. A tender heart. A tender heart is a heart that is merciful, that is affectionate and compassionate. A tender heart is not the kind of heart that just says the words, I love you, appreciate you. It does it. It doesn't just say it. It proves love with action. A tender heart helps its family in their miseries and bears with their infirmities. This is the beautiful combination of feelings and action. We live in a culture that is absolutely in bondage to how it feels. How you feel about something or someone is the most important thing. That's our culture today. I feel like a potted plant. Okay, you are one then, I guess. That's not reality a tender heart a compassionate heart is one that combines feelings and actions and deals with reality paul uses this same word for hearty compassion in ephesians 4:32 when he says be kind to one another tender hearted forgiving one another as god in christ forgave you that's exactly what tender heartedness requires kindness Compassion, submission, and if necessary, forgiveness. This is what is to characterize our lives and our interactions with one another. I'm sure, I don't know if I'd like to think this, but I think it's reality. I don't always do everything that everybody here wants me to do especially if it's like, call you, or, <laughs> or anything like that, right? And that's, if, if there's conflict, then you can come and talk to me, right? That's how, I, that's how Matthew 18 says, if that's not okay, let's talk about it. We're not always going to get it right for everybody, my responsibility is not to keep everyone happy. Your responsibility is not to keep everyone happy. That's, that's not at all what Peter's point is. That's not biblical at all. all right? our, our, our work is to work together to bring glory to the Lord. Our, our work is to work together to make disciples of all nations, our work is to work together to uh, to develop those disciples to maturity, and we do that together as a family. That's why we say that. That's why we wrote that down somewhere, because that's that's what we're supposed to do. And that there's no happiness in there. Not that uh, happiness is a byproduct, not the end goal. I right? just leave it at that. Peter's fourth word is a humble mind. This, I'm the best at this. <laughs> Let it marinate. <laughs> None of these things are possible without a humble mind. We can't have a tender heart without a humble mind. We can't we can't pursue peace without a humble mind. In truth, all of these thoughts are dependent upon one another and build upon each other, but a humble mind is what makes any of them possible. Now, humble mind, the word that Peter uses is stronger than humility. He's not saying be humble. That's not exactly it. It's stronger than that. The idea is it's a conscious effort to pursue an attitude of humility. Of being humbled, that can come from anywhere. Play golf, right? A great humbling uh, testing ground, right? Uh Our family seems to revolve around the game of baseball, the most humbling activity one can pursue, right? Whether it's baseball or golf or leaving your house, humility can come from the outside and can come in an instant. But pursuing an attitude of humility is different It removes the necessity of humbling because you're already there. Again, Paul echoes this pursuit of humility in Philippians 4, 3 and 4, when he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Pursue humility. John Calvin wrote, nothing produces more discord than when we think too highly of ourselves. And the other side of that coin is C.S. Lewis, where he says, true humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It's not... It's not self-deprecation. I'm such a dummy. Oh, nobody likes me. I'm not good at anything. What use could I possibly be to anyone? That, that's Eeyore. That's not Jesus. That's, that's not reality. It's not right. That's not humility. That's humiliation. It's not the same. Pursuing a humble mind is putting others first. It's putting the needs of others before your own. This is absolutely imperative for any of these things to happen. It's absolutely imperative for a church to live this way in order to live as the church. Otherwise, it's just an incidental organization with a weekly event. And sometimes we like it. And then there's the rest of the time. That's not the church. You could do, now, you could do the same thing at the movie theater. You haven't been able to for the last year and a half, but you could go, sit with a bunch of people, enjoy the show, get up and leave. Life hasn't changed, interacted with no one, paid too much for popcorn. That should not characterize the church, that should not describe the church at all. Putting the needs of others before yourself. Treating others the way that we would like to be treated. Any of this sound familiar? It sure sounds like Jesus to me. And Peter's final word. Blessing. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called. That you may obtain a blessing. Now, I think even there's a sermon just in this one verse. There's three points here because there's three key words evil, reviling, and blessing. In this context, the word evil means to do harm, not just random wickedness, right? Not just your own sin for the sake of sinning, but it's harming someone else. Do not repay the harm done to you with harm done to the person who harmed you, is what Peter is saying. Somebody spits in your eye, you don't spit back. Reviling is not that much different. Where evil could be considered physical harm, reviling is verbal harm. It's insult and slander. It's harming someone's feelings, harming someone's reputation with your words. And in either case, Peter reminds us that we are not to seek revenge. That's easy, right? I'm like, who wants that? I don't want to get even for anything anybody's ever done to me. Paul also reminds us that we are not to seek revenge. In Romans 12:19, says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. I don't know if you've read the Old Testament at all, but God is a lot better at vengeance than you. Let him do it. Peter had addressed Jesus' example in this, In this way, uh, way back in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, he says in verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This this is how we are to react when injured, when someone has sought to do us harm. This is our reaction, to follow Jesus' example. But instead of just leaving us with a negative, right, don't do this. Here's the line, don't cross it. Peter gives us a positive. He tells us what we should do instead. Not evil for evil. Not reviling for reviling. Instead, bless. This word bears further examination. Blessing is praying for the good of someone else. Not just hey, you kickstand in my face, here's $5. That, that's not really it. This is asking God for his favor on someone else. Evils are to be overcome with acts of kindness, specifically in this instance with prayers for blessing. Asking God to bless those who have harmed you. Jesus said in Luke six twenty seven to thirty six, "I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from him from him um, from one who takes away your cloak." See, Peter wasn't just making this stuff up. Peter is describing how to live like Jesus. When we are attacked, we are to bless. We are to literally pray for God's favor on those who did us harm. This is how to truly pursue peace. John Chrysostom, a 4th century church father, said, fire is not extinguished with fire, but with water. Likewise, wrong and hatred, not with retaliation, but with gentleness, humility, and kindness. Those are our weapons of war. Peter's word here is if we submissively bear injuries and answer with blessing, the Lord will bestow on us a blessing. We will reap what we sow. Now, that leaves me with a question I don't know about you, but what's our motivation? What should our motivation be here? Should we sow blessing in hopes of reaping a blessing? Is that our motivation, our blessing? It's like the end product, right? Should we seek out being harmed? (laughs) Come and get me, because I want some blessing, right? Should we look to be slandered so that we can pray for God's favor on those who would injure us so that we can get blessed by God? Maybe I'm overthinking this. And maybe that's just me. But even if I am overthinking it, I'm still going to say we should not sow blessing in order to reap blessing. We should sow blessing because as God's children, we are sowers by nature. Sow blessing because we're sowers. Because we belong to God now. We are new creatures. We don't sow in evil and slander and gossip and reviling. We sow blessing. So pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who do evil to you, who harm you and slander you. So, 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 okay? Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind, praying in the face of evil, praying for blessing in the face of evil and reviling. Does that sound like anyone you know? It sounds like Jesus. I want it to sound like me. I want it to sound like you. But it sure does sound like Jesus. Whoever desires to love life and see good days. Is that you? I, I like, Unless you like being miserable. I, I hope that. Whoever desires to love life and see good days. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father... um, I think this is an easy sermon for us to nod our heads to in agreement. However, these are not things that we can do on our own. We need the help of the Holy Spirit to empower us to do these things. We can't do this on our own. We cannot do this alone. We cannot function as your church without the involvement of your Holy Spirit making it possible. Father, we are powerless to live this way. I thank you, Father, through faith in your son, Jesus Christ, you have filled us with the Holy Spirit. And you have given us ability to live this way. So, Lord, we ask for more of you. If more of you means less of us, take everything. That we might be wholly dependent on your Holy Spirit, that we could live together in harmony and peace, compassion, and love. Father, there's a lot more for us to do. Help us work out the things amongst ourselves that need to be dealt with, don't let us be afraid of those confrontations, but to speak the truth in love to the glory of God and the benefit of the church family. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here this morning that does not know you as Savior and Lord, that does, does, none of this is making any sense. I pray, Father, that they would cry out to you in faith, ask for your forgiveness for their sin, accept your sacrifice on the cross was for them, that they too might be united in this would-be harmonious, united, crazy family. That's what we want most, Lord. You would make disciples through us, Make disciples of us. Help us to mature and be more like Jesus. And help us do that together as a family. We love you, Lord. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. If you would like to participate in the mission of Crossroads Church through financial support, checks can be mailed to Crossroads Church, Post Office Box 576, West Ossipie, New Hampshire, 03890.